0: Artisanal Imports is an importer of specialty beers from England, Germany, Belgium, and beyond. Their portfolio of fine ales and lagers is broad and represents a wide range of beer styles, but it is not their mission to collect every small brewery across Europe. They believe in working in full partnership with their breweries and are careful to select beers that are high quality and interesting, but that do not overlap one to the next. For more information, visit www.artisanalimports.com. I'm Jessica Harris. And welcome to my welcome table. Gather round this special table. It's scarred with memories, pitted with burn spots from hot skillets, and decorated with moisture rings from frosty glasses of lemonade, beer bottles, bourbon and ginger ale, and untold goblets of red wine. This table will be our flying carpet as we travel around the world. I'll share some of my secret spots. We'll meet new friends and reconnect with old ones. Sometimes, the table will be covered with fine porthot linen and my mother's bone china, and we'll sup on caviar and champagne. Other times, we'll cover it with yesterday's news and hanker down for a crawfish boil or a lobster supper. Whatever the meal, by the end of our time together, we'll have shared some special friends, sacred spots, and the food, drink, and music that connects them. So come... Join me at my welcome table.
1: Hi, my name's Mitzi Pratt, and I'm sitting at the welcome table.
0: I am Patrick Dunn, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. My name is John Barkley, and I'm sitting at the welcome table.
1: My name is Ann McBride, and I'm sitting at the welcome table. I'm Betty Fussell, and I, too, am sitting at the welcome table.
0: Compass Point. 41.88 41.88 degrees north 87.62 degrees west Chicago, Illinois I've always been more a Langston Hughes type than a Carl Sandburg person One who is was more at home in the urban enclaves of New York City than anywhere else the hog-butcher-to-the-world ethic of the Second City is really not for me. But then, in the 1970s, when I was travel editor for Essence magazine, I made my first trip to the Windy City. Then-editor-in-chief Marsha Gillespie introduced me to her friend Lillian, who drove a big old Cadillac and went under the CB handle of Seville Lil, and we tootled off to see the city. Back then, the south side of Chicago was still the South Side in those days, and Lil made sure that I visited a series of blues clubs and night owl joints, including Flukie's, a local club of some fame.
1: Sweet
0: home, Chicago. Mention Flukies to any Chicagoan of a certain age, black, and they go, mm-hmm. Entering Flukies was like opening a door onto the past. The walls were hung with red-flocked wallpaper, a long mahogany bar lined one wall. It looked like nothing as much as a 19th century brothel or at least how i imagined a 19th century brothel might look the 70s were a time of wide-brimmed hats and swaggering men wearing platform shoes who flashed made deals talked trash and strutted like bright-colored peacocks and flukies seemed to be their chicago roost the barmaids called everyone baby and sugar And like the place itself, seemed to have been imported directly from some sweet home down south. As the evening was softened more and more by bourbon and ginger ale, I began to realize that the crowd at Flukey's was made up of folks that shared common history, common roots. People circulated and exchanged news of the Mississippi hometowns that they shared. They asked about friends and families and passed around copies of the local paper that the most recent traveler had brought back from down home. Now gone, even then Flukie's was an atavism, a bar like many that must have existed in the days of the Great Migration when folks who came from the same hamlets and small towns of the South clustered together. I have often wondered about Flukie's. Perhaps It was named for the notorious Robin Hood-like drug kingpin, Fluky Stokes, who gave his son Willie, a.k.a. The Wimp, a grandiose funeral. The Wimp was buried in a Cadillac-like coffin complete with flashing head and tail lights and adorned with diamond rings and $1,000 bills. There was even a song written about it. Fluky, Fluky's own wake, after he was gunned down in a 1986 shootout, was attended by 7,000 mourners. Like Stokes, Flukey's The Place was over the top and very much of a different period. But The Place gave me a real feel for the geography that led folks straight from Mississippi to Chicago. For folks in the Mississippi Delta... The Mississippi River provided a way out. They headed due north, Natchez, Vicksburg, Memphis, St. Louis, and on into Illinois and Chicago. I've been to Chicago many times since then. On one memorable occasion, my friend Marvin Jones, who is a chef, took me on a Chicago barbecue crawl. We made our way into corners where I'd never dared venture alone. I can still recall waiting in a line of folks in a dark, narrow corridor, smelling the mix of smoke and char in the air, mixed with the sweet pungency of cooking meat. We'd managed to get in just before the line was closed, and the small joint ran out of barbecue. Shut its windows for the night, we feasted, sucking on the bone tips of the ribs, scarfing down paper plates brimming with chopped pork barbecue. The taste of the queue the taste of the queue was sweet and tart with the red sauce that I'd learned to love in some of my favorite Memphis spots. Memphis was a stop on the way north to Chicago, and some of those folks heading north simply remained in Memphis and settled others stayed only long enough to make money and continue north to Chicago and connections between the two cities and the delta still run deep Chicago has long been a beacon for blacks leaving the south its big shoulders ethos appealed to those who had little more than the strength of their backs and the acuity of their wit founded by black trading post owner Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable Chicago has always been a town of entrepreneurs for black folks. No entrepreneur was more successful than John Johnson, who founded the Johnson Publishing Company there in 1942. A migrant from Arkansas, Johnson's success was the larger-than-life version of the smaller stories of entrepreneurial success that played out in the first half of the 20th century. The tale of how he began publishing Negro Digest and then Ebony and founded his empire that became the largest black-owned publishing firm in the world is the stuff of legend. No visit to Chicago for me is complete without a visit to the offices of Johnson Publishing, where my friend Charlotte Lyons was food editor of Ebony for more than three decades, following in the steps of the very first black food editor, Frida Denight. Charlotte's office cum test kitchen is a preserved in amber version of everybody's dream kitchen in the 1970s, complete with orange day glow wallpaper and avocado refrigerator and stove. The headquarters of Ebony, when built in 1973, were the pride not only of the Johnson family that it founded the publishing giant, but a testimonial of accomplishment for African-Americans all over the country. The opening was attended by 1,000 notables including Lena Horne, Shirley Chisholm, Amiri Baraka, and then Chicago Mayor Richard Daley. As recently as 2008, I was tickled to note that some church sisters, hats firmly planted on heads and gloves in hand, had made Johnson headquarters a stop on their Chicago trip and just come to visit the building and see where the magazine that had been so much a part of their lives was produced. The building was pure 1970s top of the line, exotic wood, art hung corridors, executive offices with vast views of the park across the street, its own archives and library. The Ebony building still stands But the company has moved elsewhere as it works to reinvent itself in a world that is less friendly to print magazines and all about computer apps and blogs. Charlotte is no longer food editor, and many other old-timers have left. The building and the company itself, though, continue to reflect a pride in ownership that was and is part of the entrepreneurial feeling among African Americans, nowhere more than in Chicago. It's not without reason that the first black president of the U.S. came from Chicago. For the city, and the opportunity that it has traditionally offered African Americans, embodies an ongoing quest for acceptance and equal success, even in the 21st century. Come on now, what other city could have given us Oprah? African-Americans are only one part of Chicago's story. Often slurred with the sobriquet second city, Chicago is no second-class New York. Rather, it is a vibrant, pulsing hub that looks American in ways that New York looks increasingly European and San Francisco increasingly Asian. What other city could have given us competing newspaper critics, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, who taught us about film and helped many of us make the leap from watching movies to viewing film. And on April 4, 2013, Roger Ebert would give us his final lesson and teach us about amazing grace and the ability to die with dignity. And let's not forget the Second City Theater Company defined comedy for the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st, with graduates like John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Bill Murray, Shelley Long, Chris Farley, Amy Sedaris, and Tim Robinson. Need I mention the glory days of Michael Jordan and the Bulls? One of the few sports franchises I can name. There are used bookstores aplenty, and on more than one trip I've been grateful to be able to beg mailroom privileges from Ebony, thanks to the buddy Charlotte. While there are many and more than a few notable used bookstores in the city, I think that Powell's Bookstore is my favorite. It's quite simply a bibliophile's dream and a place that I have spent more than one afternoon. But I managed to pry myself away because there are also great museums in Chicago. In fact, there are over 40 museums in the city that beckon. The Art Institute houses the third largest art collection in the nation and is noted for its collection of Impressionists. If you get there before September 22, 2013, you can see the show Impressionism, Fashion, and Modernity that originated from a collaboration with the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. If not, you can simply savor the museum's own amazing collection that includes the iconic Sunday on la Grande Jatte by Georges Seurat, Gauguin's Arlésienne, Mistral, and Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's At the Moulin Rouge, as well as works by Manet, Monet, Van Gogh. Renoir and the entire crew, including lesser-known artists like Caillebotte and Signac. Anyone who saw the Field Museum's chocolate exhibit knows that any of its exhibitions are a must for their ability to instruct across disciplines.
1: Here we. Yes, by gum. And yes, by golly, Kukla, Fran, and dear old Ollie. Here we, here we are again, here we are again, here we are again, here we are again, here we are again,
0: here we are again. Any child watching in the early years of television between 1947 and 1957 remembers the theme from Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, Broadcast from Chicago via the new medium, host Fran Allison interacted with puppets by Bert Tilstrom in a show that prefigured the Muppets with its wit and its bravado. The original puppets are kept in a carefully climate-controlled archive at the Chicago Historical Society. On one visit, the year my mother died, I got to see them. It was truly moving, the empty, inanimate puppets took me back to my childhood, and connected me with my life in those carefree times. My brief visit with Kukla, Ali, Beulah Witch, Madame Oglepus, and the other Kuklapolitan players will always be a personal Chicago high spot. But even there, I didn't linger long in memory lane because I didn't want to skip the Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable Museum of African American History. It hosts lectures, workshops, musical performances, and book signings. I'm still trying to get on their list. I've missed Jeffrey and Carmen, a memoir in four movements, an exhibit on Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de Lavalade, but there's always something wonderful happening there. Now, I'd have thought that this museum would be located in Texas or New Mexico, but Chicago is also home to the National Museum of Mexican Art. The museum is home to an over 7,500-piece collection of art and artifacts from our neighbor to the south, and is the only Latino museum accredited by the American Alliance of Museums. An extra plus is that it's located in the middle of Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood, the heart of the city's vibrant Mexican community, where inexpensive rents have also created a growing arts district. Feeling like a Mexican snack? Drop in at Nueva Leon or Picante Grill, or grab a shot of two of tequila at El Gato Boracho. I love the name, the drunk cat. Hi, I'm Rick Bayless, host of Mexico, One Plate at a Time. Well, every week here in our restaurants for Terra Grill and Topolobampo, we start out fresh. I know, though, that for followers of the food shows on public television, say Mexico and Chicago in the same breath, and it's all about Rick Bayless. Indeed, for many, his growing culinary empire is a thing of wonder. Frontera Grill, the keystone of the empire, still rocks, and Topolobampo retains the sleek sophistication of a Zona Rosa dining spot. Soco, a newer addition, prefers Bayliss' take on Mexican street food. If you should miss any of these, Bayliss also has outposts in Chicago's main Macy's, as well as at O'Hare Airport, where the virtually guaranteed delays... Give you time to catch a quick bite. Bayliss's connection of Chicago and Mexico, though, are only the tip of the city's culinary iceberg. Early on, the proximity of the stockyards and slaughterhouses made Chi-town a meat-and-potatoes town. But nowadays, as proven by Bayliss's success, anything can and does go. From the precious and the pricey to the plebeian, Chicago is a town that loves food. Charlie Trotta recently closed his restaurant, but the meals he prepared and the meticulous handling of ingredients that he championed back then foretold the farm to table locavore movement and live in the memories of those who ate at his glorious establishment and set a high culinary bar indeed. Chicagoans wax rhapsodic about the Chicago hot dog. It's a special thing indeed. An all-natural casing, Frank, the natural casing gives the dog its snap, is served on a poppy seed bun, preferably one from S. Rosenson. They're available online for homesick folks or the culinarily adventurous. The dog is steamed and then placed into a steamed roll, And then the fun begins. There's yellow mustard, a la French's ballpark, minced onion, often a sweet onion like a Vidalia if you want to cut down on the bite, a touch of neon green sweet relish, some sliced tomatoes, quartered if you please, a kosher dill pickle spear, some of the pickled bird chilies known as sport peppers, and then topped with a pinch of celery salt. A Chicago dog is truly a meal on a bun and addictive to many. I'll have one, but basically I'll still stick to barbecue and try to find a few new spots on each trip. I could talk about Frank Lloyd Wright buildings and the University of Chicago's campus or the wonders of shopping in Water Tower Place or the delights of Lake in Summer, but I really do know New York's my home. New Orleans is my heart. But Chicago, well, it's my kind of town.
1: I was born in a city they call the Windy City. Now, they call it the Windy City because of the hawk, the almighty hawk boy, and he's mean and new in the wintertime. But let me tell you what's happening. A lot of things are going down in Chicago, and now it's really cool. So let me tell you what's happening at the address, baby. This is what's really going on. My kind of town, Chicago is. My kind of town Chicago is My kind of People too Talking about People who They smile at you And every Every time Chicago is one town that won't let you down. It's my kind of town.
0: So, until next time... Yeah.
1: Get it good and greasy when I'm gone, 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 gone keep my good.